Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. We gather every Sunday at 9.30 and 11 o'clock and would love for you to join us. If we can do anything for you at all, please email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. The teaching text for today comes from Job 1, 1 through 12. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one else like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, very well, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Before we hear from John, uh, let's share our corporate centering prayer, and I would invite you to Take your concerns and your, your fears and your anxieties and open up your fists and be in a position to receive and let go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you made us and you sustain us. Through your son, Jesus Christ, you are rescuing us. By the work of your spirit, you are renewing us. As we come today, we admit we are broken and we need you. Whatever you want to say to us, we want to hear. Whatever you want to do among us, we want to embrace. However you want to shape us, we want to cooperate. As we sing and pray and read and gather at the table, may hope rise, may our hearts align, may sin die, and may Christ shine. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks, Bill. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of the sinner, or sit in the seat of the scoffer, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. 
He'll be like a tree planted by streams of living water whose leaf does not wither, whose flower does not fade. In everything he does, he prospers. These passages from Proverbs 3 and Psalm 37 and Psalm 1 are touchstone passages for a lot of us who have followed Jesus. This idea that if we, if we fear God, if we truly trust God, if we delight in His law, if the object of our existence is to please Him, He'll bless us in everything we do, He'll make our paths straight. And a lot of us in this room, this is not just an intellectual proposition, it's a lived reality. Because for you, perhaps, you knew a time in which you were not trusting the Lord and it was disorderly, it was a mess. And there was a time for you when you crossed the line of faith and you said, I'm going to surrender, I'm going to delight, I'm going to nourish myself on the way of Jesus, live in the way of Yahweh, and you experienced that shift, that blessing. A lot of us have that lived reality of following in the way of Jesus, following in the, the way of Yahweh, leading to life and peace and hope and flourishing. But what about when it feels like those verses ring hollow? What about those times where you feel like you're trusting, you're delighting, you're doing all of the things that you're supposed to do, and yet your path feels very crooked, your miracle feels out of reach, the thing that you are hoping for, that desire of your heart has gone unfulfilled? What happens when you encounter suffering or tragedy or infertility or a divorce paper or, or some kind of loss that catches you completely off guard? How do you make sense out of this part of reality? A lot of times, religious people have the most spiritually and and emotionally unhelpful advice or words of comfort in those times, saying things like, well, maybe you didn't have enough faith, or you sinned and God is punishing you, God must have a plan, everything happens for a reason, or most sinister of all when, when there's loss is, you know, heaven must have needed another angel. The Lord works in mysterious ways. And wanting both to help you and to alleviate their their own discomfort with your suffering, people go to this premature state of bliss and offer these little quips, these little pithy sayings that makes them feel better, makes it feel like they've tied a bow around your suffering, but you're left with still wondering, why is this happening? Why am I experiencing this grief and this loss and this disappointment? People behave as if God has given them an insider tip on why you're undergoing this tremendous ordeal. Like, don't you think God would have told me I'm the one who's going through it right now? Don't just say, as you have friends who are going through stuff, loss, grief, disappointment, don't say this stuff. Don't try to wrap a bow around their suffering so that you feel better. Say, I love you. Say, I'm sorry. I'm praying for you, Uh, make them a meal, walk their dog, but don't try to find a silver lining every time they experience grief. They need to name it. They need to walk through it. Don't say that stuff. But for all of us, if there are times and when there are times when we feel like we're doing our part of the deal, we're trusting, we're acknowledging, we're delighting, we're, we're, we're doing everything we feel like we're called to do, and yet it feels like life is not going the direction that we expected. How do we make sense of it? In those moments where there's a clear disparity between us doing our part and feeling like God's not doing His part reveals for us uh, the, the conflict within our motivation. It begs the question inside of us, why do we serve God in the first place? 
also raises questions about the nature of God and human existence. If God is good, then why does this stuff happen? Why do we suffer? And these questions, the kind of questions that, that you and I have all faced or will face as tragedy comes our direction, are exa- the exact like existential questions that the book of Job wants to bring out in the open and to discuss. These are the kind of questions that when a person faces crisis, if their faith has not prepared them for that moment to have an answer, often jettisons them outside of the community of faith because they don't have an explanation for why this is happening. The book of Job brings up these questions about why does anybody fear God? Is it for what we're going to get out of it? Is serving God an implicit bargain for our security and our well-being? Like, okay, God, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, as if God needed anything from us in the first place. Can we and do we serve God regardless of outcomes? And how do we make sense out of suffering? The book of Job, which is right in the middle of your Bible, and if you don't have one, you can grab a pew Bible. We're going to look at Job 1 on page 717. The book of Job falls into this genre of literature called wisdom literature. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, these all fall into to wisdom literature, reflections on what does it mean to live the good and the blessed life. Proverbs is a book of these like 140 character aphorisms, these little pithy sayings, reflections on what a good and blessed life looks like. That's Proverbs. Then we have Ecclesiastes, which has this somewhat cynical bent on reality. Gen Xers consequently love uh, the book of Ecclesiastes because it has this like cynical angle on, on like, like what is a meaningful life and more importantly, like what is a meaningless life? Everything is meaningless under the sun. But Job is where Proverbs meets Ecclesiastes. Job is where trust in the Lord with all your heart and he'll make your paths straight. It's like the rubber of that meets the road of a lived existence, which includes grief and loss and death and disappointment. As we look at this passage from Job, we notice there are not a lot of temporal markers in there. There's nothing in all the book of Job that could help us say this was probably written, uh, you know, in this place at this time. It's, it's really stripped of the kind of details that a lot of the other biblical books give us. In fact, we get the sense there's some uh, intentional vagueness to the story. Job is a non-Jewish name, and in a lot of, like, Jewish storytelling, the name would be very important. The name would be encoded with meaning, but we have no such meaning in the name of Job or his friends. We also hear that Job is from this place called Uz. Uz is a non-Jewish community, and we get the sense the author does not want us paying attention to those kind of details of the, like, the quest for the historical Job. He wants us to pay attention to the arguments, the, the ideas discussed in the book of Job. Job is what you might call a didactic story. In Greek, uh, didache means the teaching. It, this is a book uh, it, written in the form of a story to help us like wrestle with these ideas of suffering, of why we experience suffering. It's a story written to teach and explore an idea. And as we look at the beginning of the story, we meet this character, Job, and Job is like Johnny America. He's like the valedictorian. He's the quarterback. He's like the guy with like perfect character, and he's also super successful. This is what Job won, how he's described and uh, uh, displayed for us. Let's look at that. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless, upright, feared God, and shunned evil. And then look at just how perfectly all of these numbers work. Seven sons, three daughters. 
7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, donkeys, <laughs> donkeys. It's a particular kind of donkey, the donkey. He had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the east. So at the beginning, we know Job is a solid dude. He's trustworthy. And he's so perfect, you know, like when his kids would get together and his kids would party, Job is conscientious and he's like, God, I, and just in case they did anything stupid, I'm going to make some offerings on their behalf. Job is, co- Job is covering his bases. Job is so, such a man of character and integrity that God is bragging on Job before the whole divine council. And then there's this weird detail about Satan being in the council, Satan being there and, and pushing back on God. Was anybody a little bit weirded out by Satan's presence in, like, in God's presence and then making this divine wager? There's an interesting thing that happens. We're reading this Bible in English, and you can trust your Bible. But we also know that our Bible was translated from other languages, and the translators of the New International Version made a choice. That in the in Hebrew, the words we read there are Hasatan, the Satan, Satan with a lowercase s. It's not a proper noun, Satan, it's a common noun, the Satan, the accuser. And it's interesting, if you were to read the whole Old Testament, just paying attention to this word Satan, Hasatan, the Satan, uh, it doesn't show up at all in the garden scene. You know, you always picture like the Garden of Eden, Satan comes or the devil comes. It just tells us in the story it's a serpent. Here we see the Satan, and, uh, and it's portrayed, the Satan just means the accuser, the adversary. And Scripture doesn't seem to want us to spend too much time obsessing over the identity and the nature of the evil one, just that there is an adversary. And we get the sense in reading the story that it's almost like a setup for everything that follows. It's kind of like a couple sages are sitting together and they're talking about like, look, let's just imagine there's the most perfect guy who's ever lived. I mean, he's got character out the wazoo. God has blessed him. He's got all these resources. And God's like bragging on him to his opponents. His opponents are, are interjecting doubt about the main character's motivation for piety. That's the role that the Satan is playing in this story. We're not meant to take from this story that God and Satan get together and they make a contractual agreement about all of human suffering. That's not the role of the Satan in the story here. It's the role of interjecting doubt into this character's story, the motivation for Job's piety, why he serves God in the first place. The Satan is, uh, plays this adversarial role. Um, as, as the story progresses, the Satan gets the green light from God in this didactic story to take out Job's servants and his livestock, his children, and ultimately uh, his health. We see that his health languishes, languishes in the chapters to come. But in all of this, in losing his servants and his livestock and his children, Job does not curse God. In fact, look at Job's response to his loss at the end of Job chapter 1. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. He fell to the ground in worship, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I'll depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job is an exemplar, even having lost nearly everything. 
At, this, at the end of Job chapter 2, his friends, his three friends arrive, and they are really great friends at the beginning, like Chris said. For seven days, they just sit in silence with him. And having not talked for seven days, at the end of it, they get real chatty. And they feel like, let's explore in front of Job why we think he's experienced this loss. Uh, the, the rest of the book is the conversation between these friends about why Job is suffering and has lost all of this. It's worth remembering as we think about the story that Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, uh, ironically, those are the names of my children, um, <laughs> they know nothing about this divine conversation. They just know what has happened, but they're not privy to anything that has happened above their pay grade. So they're sitting here on the earth trying to make sense of the events. And as Job begins pontificating his own understanding of why he's suffering, he vehemently defends his innocence. He said, I did not do any of this. I didn't do any bad stuff to deserve this. What on earth is the deal? His friends don't hold the same opinion. And it's worth noting, the text demonstrates Job didn't do anything deserving this. In fact, it was his integrity that created the problems for him as God had the conversation with the Satan. The story defends Job's argument of his innocence. But his friends disagree. This is Eliphaz's first argument. He says, listen, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I've observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. So Eliphaz says, look, good people never suffer. That just is not a thing. That doesn't happen. If you do bad stuff, bad stuff is going to happen to you. This is Bildad's argument, the next one. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what's right? When your children sinned against Him, He gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Same, con same concept. Somebody sinned, and as a result of it, they're suffering. And then the final argument from the third friend, look, if you devote your heart to God, if you stretch out your hands to Him, if you put away the sin that's in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault, after you've confessed what we all know you've done, you'll lift up your face, you'll stand firm and without fear, and you will surely forget your trouble. All of the arguments of Job's friend, friends hinge on this idea of retributive justice. Retributive justice. Retribution is punishments inflicted on someone as vengeance for a wrong or a criminal act. So they're all making the case. You or your children have done something deserving this, and so God is giving you what's coming to you. The, the argument is in this life, we all ultimately get what we deserve. If you do good, you'll get good. If you do poorly, you'll get negative consequences, which is basically the argument of karma. And the Job's friends, as they're trying to make sense theoretically about why he's suffering, can't conceive of an alternative argument. They, they, they only think, someone screwed up, this is why you're going through this. And I wonder if you'd think about your life and maybe like go to a moment of extreme loss or hardship or grief, is there any part of you that believes the arguments put forward by Job's friends? And maybe, you'd say, maybe you can tell by my setup that I'm going to argue against that. But like in the core of your being, you kind of think it's true. That the divorce happened because like you didn't go to church or, or like, like something happened because you had it coming to you. 
And maybe like when things are going poorly, you think, well, I'm going to pay off God. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to start giving. I'm going to do a random act of kindness. And then like I'm going to get some good juju with God and things are going to turn the other direction. Or maybe when things are going really well, you, it like boosts your ego because you think it's because you're awesome. Is there a part of you that thinks subconsciously that you've either been punished for doing something wrong when tragedy strikes or you're being rewarded for what a great and awesome person that you are. In the Gospel of John, Jesus meets this man who's born blind. Born blind. And it leads to this conversation, and it it raises the issue that I want to talk about uh, right here. This is John chapter 9. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. The disciples take it as a given that retributive justice is at work. Someone screwed up and God is punishing them. Who sinned that he was born blind? And Jesus gives an unambiguous answer to the question. Neither, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. The disciples believe similarly to Job's friends that retributive justice is at work. And when Jesus is pegged with this question, who sinned this man or his parents? It's like, so validate for us in what specific way retributive justice was working here. Jesus gives the clear answer, neither. Jesus refuses to affirm that one's particular sin is the, is the cause of particular suffering. That if you do this, that is going to happen. Jesus refuses to affirm that one's particular sin is the cause of particular suffering. Now, it's also worth noting that Jesus, the Gospels don't let us off the hook entirely. If I take a hammer and I, and I hammer it onto my finger, it's going to hurt. It's not saying that, that we're totally void of facing the consequences for our actions. There are ways that we can live that help protect us against unnecessary suffering. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He'll make your paths straight. That is still true. But when we make choices deliberately to destroy our lives, God lets us face the consequences of that. There are ways to live that lead to life. Now, what's so powerful to hold on to here, for those of us who subconsciously make this argument of retributive justice, if I do good, God will hook me up. If I do bad, I'm going to be in trouble, is that the story itself makes the argument moot. In addition to that, the words of Jesus said very unambiguously, neither Neither man's, neither his nor his parents' sin made it happen, which leads us to a conclusion that's on solid biblical grounding, that retributive justice is not the driving dynamic at work in our world. So consequently, there are evil people who prosper, who flourish. There are good people who, who, who love God, who fear Him, who suffer, who get diagnoses, who wrestle. But then that leads us to the question, when tragedy strikes, how do we make sense of it? Why is it happening at all? And we mustn't be like Job's friends who rush to judgment and rush to assuming that someone screwed up, that there's a clear link between our behavior and the tragedies that befall us. As we think biblically and put on like a biblical imagination, for those of you who've been at the church, part of the church all year, and we're walking through the story of God, there are answers provided for us in the narrative. 
that the biblical story demonstrate that as a result of the macro sin of humankind, chaos has been unleashed into the world. Like picture being at a, in a racquetball court and like a million bouncy balls are going off the walls in every direction. Somebody's going to get hit. As a result of the macro sin of humankind, chaos has been unleashed into the world like a million bouncy balls ricocheting off the walls. It's, it's the consequences of our collective rebellion and they indiscriminately takes people out left and right, rich, poor, righteous, unrighteous. Uh, earlier this week when there was one of the first round of tornadoes, there was an interview with a guy in the Tulsa world who his house was destroyed. And he said, I guess it was just my turn. It reflected that appreciation for the indiscriminate ways in which the chaos of the world unleashed through our collective rebellion takes victims. And sometimes it's going to be you and sometimes it's going to be me. And so when we're revulsed by the suffering and the evil of our world, things like trafficking and things that just tick us off like cancer or, or natural evils like tsunamis and tornadoes that have devastating consequences, we, we ask why because we want, to make, we want an answer that makes sense of it. I think the closest we can come is chaos, that as a result of our macro sin, chaos has been unleashed into the world. It shows up not only in the human heart, it shows up in human institutions. It shows up in the choices that we make that have devastating consequences on the lives of the people around us. That's called moral evil. That as a result of our macro rebellion, we've inherited this proclivity that if left unattended, if not dealt with in a powerful way through the work of the Holy Spirit, is going to snowball and people will do things that will blow your mind. 20th century Europe couldn't conceive of the evils of the Holocaust. There was a cosmopolitan society. They couldn't appreciate just how evil the human heart could be. It's moral evil. But as a result of our macro rebellion, there's also this chaos brought in through natural evil. And so water, this thing that is such a gift, can also be perverted and turned into something that's very dangerous. People drown in that, that destroys homes and properties. This thing that's a gift can also be subverted into something that's dangerous. And so we have tsunamis, we have droughts, we have earthquakes, we have all of these things. Chaos was welcomed into the world through collective rebellion. It shows up in natural evil. It shows up in moral evil, those things that are caused by people making destructive choices. The world is presently in a state of chaos because of our collective rebellion against God. And the, the effects of this show up just everywhere. Our suffering we should not interpret universally as a sign uh, of like justice for a particular sin, but a consequence of living in a world of chaos that was unleashed by universal sin. It's we all contribute to this reality. So if the why behind the suffering in the present age is not justice, you're getting what is coming to you in a particular sense, but chaos as a result of sin in a general sense, we still need a what to help us make sense of what do we do when we suffer and how do we endure? What do we think about? What are the little bookmarks that we put in our page so that when suffering comes to us, we can turn to that page and, and plan accordingly? How do we anchor ourselves in the middle of suffering? Uh, I want to share four 
affirmations, for aspirations, for prayers that you might just tuck away for when the day of suffering comes to you. And maybe that's today. Maybe you're going through hell and you're, you're like looking for a lifeline. Uh, this is number one. In my suffering, may the work of God be displayed in me. In my suffering, may the work of God be displayed in me. This is 1 Corinthians 12. God said to me, says Paul, my grace is sufficient. It's enough for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insult and hardship, persecution and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When you're going through the middle of hell, and you're enduring suffering, say, in my suffering, may the work of God be displayed in me. I told a story not long ago about Perpetua and Felicity, those North African saints who died as martyrs in the arena in Carthage. The work and the power of God was displayed in them. They owned the moment of their martyrdom. I think about Chris, who as he was going through chemo treatments, kept up a Caring Bridge journal. And I mean, this is a moment of vulnerability. This is a moment of suffering and uncertainty in so many of us will treasure those entries. The work of God was being displayed in him in his weakness in a way that could not have been displayed through his strength. John Wesley, the founder of the, of the Methodist movement, talked about one of the great contributions of Methodists to the world is that we die well. That there was a way in which Methodists died joyfully that told a story to the world that was magnetic and attractive in weakness, in martyrdom, in sickness, and in pain, the work of God being displayed in a way that was magnetic and honored Him. In my suffering, may the work of God be displayed in me. Number two, in my suffering, may I embrace the lessons of perseverance. May embrace the lessons of perseverance. Some of you probably knew I was going to go here. James 1. Consider it joy, my brothers and sisters. Did you notice how both Paul and James brought up joy? Consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work. Permit it. Buy in to the work that perseverance is doing in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In my suffering, may I embrace the lessons of perseverance so that I can be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Number three, in my suffering, may I rely on the prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. You know those moments where you are overwhelmed. You don't want to pray. And even if you did, you wouldn't know how to pray for yourself. Gosh, I keep asking for you to change it. You're not changing it. So what do you want me to ask for? You're just hacked off. You're, you're, you're at a loss. You're totally out of control. In my weakness, in my suffering, may I rely on the prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is Romans chapter 8. Paul, who knows suffering, writing to a church that knows persecution, he says, in the same way, the Spirit 
helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. When you don't know how to pray for yourself, the Spirit who knows you inside and out and also knows the heart of God is praying for you according to the will of God. When you can't pray for yourself, when you're at your wit's end, when you have no words left, the Spirit is pulling for you. The New Testament also demonstrates for us that at Jesus' ascension, He was seated at the right hand of the Father, and there He's interceding for you and I, which gives this picture that the whole Godhead is pulling for us. Do you remember when we talked about the Trinity a couple of months ago and we gave this picture of the life of the Christian? With the, with the arm of Jesus around them and pushing them forward to the Father, with the Spirit behind them, hemming them into this place of security within the Godhead. In my weakness, may I rely on the prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, number four, in my suffering, may I remember this is not the end. This is not the end of the story. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. In the ancient Near Eastern mind, the sea is the place of evil and chaos. The origin of all that has brought rot destruction on our world. There was no longer any sea. There was no longer any chaos. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people. He'll dwell with them and be with them. They'll be his people and God will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or cancer. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. In my suffering, may I remember, this is not the end. There's a songwriter named Sandra McCracken who's got this great line in her song, Fool's Gold. She says, If, if it's not okay, then it's not the end. And this is not okay. So I know this is not, this is not the end. Your story, your diagnosis, your divorce, your doubt, uh, the prayer that has continued to go on unanswered, in my suffering, in my languishing, may I remember this is not the end. If it's not okay, then it's not the end. And this is not okay. The state of things right now, in our world, in our families, in the nations of the world seeing tremendous loss and bloodshed. This is not okay. And so I know that this is not, this is not the end. We believe that the chaos of the present age will be subdued finally when Christ returns in glory. We also believe that the chaos of the present age is being subdued through the inbreaking kingdom of God. 
And this reordering of a world of chaos began at the moments of the world's greatest injustice. When the innocent Son of God bore on His body the blame and the guilt and the punishment for our sin, our collective sin. The psalmist thanked God that He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't because Jesus was treated as our sins deserve. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This was a gift not of justice, but of mercy from a God who truly knows and truly loves. And if you are walking through hell right now, the gift of God for Jesus Christ can break into your world too. To give you the, the gift of His Spirit so that in your weakness He can prove Himself strong. That in your struggle you can also learn perseverance so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. That in your suffering and the moments where you find yourself unable to pray for yourself, you can live and rest in the power of the Godhead pulling for you. In your suffering, be reminded, this is not the end. This is not over. This is not final yet. Christ, who's gone into heaven, will come back to restore and to renew all things. But until he comes, we wait. We wait with hope. We want to let him do every good thing in us that he wants to. And join him in the reordering of this disordered and chaotic world. Let's pray together. Father, I share all of this from a posture of inexperience as one who's been kept from most suffering. And so forgive me for presuming confidence in areas in which I'm not experienced. To whatever degree that I'm in error, may your spirit correct. But Lord, where we are relying on your word, prove yourself faithful. Thank you that you are a God who in all things is working for good, who's endlessly resourceful and creative to turn the chaos of this world into opportunities of beauty and redemption. Thank you that amid the chaos, your voice speaks loud and true. May we heed it. May we build our life on the person of Jesus Christ. May we keep ourselves in cooperation with the Holy Spirit from welcoming destruction into our own lives through sin. And would you strengthen us and bolster us as the chaos of this world indiscriminately picks on us and it's our turn. Lord Jesus, I pray for my friends in this room who are going through it right now for whom these prayers are not light but costly. That by your Spirit you would strengthen the resolve, the faith, the courage. Not that's built on wishful thinking or pulling a silver lining out of her pocket, but one that's anchored in your promise and your identity. That come what may, we'll trust you. Jesus, I remember... He said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. We who know doubt, we who have not yet seen your face will experience a particular blessing when our faith is made sight, when things are finally made okay, 
Until that day, strengthen our resolve. Help us to trust you. May we be nourished on the person of Jesus Christ so that we may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Come, Lord Jesus.